Yes, I also know what word you're talking about. It's okay, we still love you. I love you too. I love you both. Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week, we will discuss our lives, our goals, and our expectations as artists, as well as discuss what it is to be an artist. Performers, visual artists, and musicians. Mike and I, we want to talk to you, and we want to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art really means to you. We'll have guests to discuss artistic expression and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. And try to answer that question. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join us in the conversation. Welcome to Active Listeners Podcast. I am your co-host, Mike. And I am the other co-host, Shane. <laughs> and today, we are going to take some time to show some backstage appreciation. We have talked to a lot of performer types uh, in our first uh, season here, and we would like to bring on a delightful backstage artist, Christopher Moneymaker. He is a prop master extraordinaire. And we are going to take this opportunity to talk to Chris about that type of work. Yeah. And without further ado, let's just bring... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk at you for a little bit. A little bit. Not too much. Because both of us have varying degrees of experience in this particular situation. On stage and backstage. the, The front and the back of house. I mean... I know that I, I love acting and I love getting those pats on the back, but I also really enjoy directing. I really enjoy doing some playwriting. I honestly don't admit this to a lot of people, but I enjoyed my time working in the box office. <gasps> I know. I know. The gasp. <laughs> and as some of you know, that, you know, my nine to five is that is production technician i'm a production tech he's at working the, nine to five. <laughs> at the rensselaer polytechnic institute experimental media and performing arts center uh at rpi i'm actually really excited to see that space once it opens back up because i've never seen it oh yeah dude it's so cool yeah so this is i'm very familiar with this type of work and it's a whole nother animal it's a whole nother it's a whole nother space of creativity and it's i think everyone that i know that does this work either started doing it right away or just like did like a lifetime of <laughs> a lifetime of like technical jobs and had like a periphery understanding of theater and then ended up discovering like oh I can join these things together and do a theater job that isn't performing or directing or writing yeah I'm when I was in high school way back in the day because we're the olds we're the olds now we always did these big extravagant shows with huge casts because everyone in high school wants to act. They want to be on stage. But what I feel like our director did so well was to teach us how the backstage has to be run as well. He was never about bringing in outside people to get the job done. It was, oh, you want to act on stage? Well, guess what? You have to build the stage. You have to light the stage. You have to create props. You have to 
move set pieces. And I know you and I in early college, how many set pieces did we build for shows that we were acting in? Oh man, there's so many, so many build nights. <laughs> late nights. Late nights, late nights, early mornings. Yeah. And I think having those moments, at least for me, it, during my education, I had a similar experience in high school where we were fortunate enough in my school to have a dedicated performance space, the black box theater on site. So like we were never sharing the space with auditorium related activities. It was just, hey, we're doing a show and this was our space to rehearse and to perform. Uh, And then also, you know, we had a pretty extensive grid and some pretty... Uh, pretty advanced equipment that we were able to use in there. So, yeah, it was it was like a definitely um, a uh, oh, what's the, what's the turn of phrase of riches um, wealth of riches. Uh, I buy that. Yeah, I don't know. That's not what it was. It was it was definitely a, a great experience to have so early in my interaction with theater. Uh, that helped me. That helped me cultivate a lot of my artistic skill into the type of community and work that I also liked to be a part of as an as a a performer. Yeah. Um I remember that I always liked to give my high school a lot of shit because I think it was I think it was quite literally the year after I graduated they redid the entire theater. <laughs> new sound system, new lighting, new stage. It was beautiful. <laughs> And all I could think of was, like, that twinge of jealousy, but also that ability to be like, yeah, I did it old school. (laughs) I had to walk uphill both ways. Both ways to rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah. So, Shane, what's, what's, what's your favorite backstage thing to do when you're not directing, when you're not doing something that puts you on the marquee? Sure. I would have to say, honestly, in bigger stage productions, probably the moving of the set. It is such a... Stagehand? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that has to be choreographed and rehearsed. And I'm a sucker for rehearsal. <laughs> Even if I'm going to be doing it in dark clothes, no lights on the stage, no one's going to see me. That's how I know I did it well. That's that's exactly that's exactly how you know you did it well. And one of the things doing that type of work, like you don't want to be noticed. You don't want the audience to even think of you. You know what I mean? If you're doing your job right, you don't want them to think of you. And actually, I actually this actually brings me back to the the Moors uh, show that Shane was in uh, a number a number of years ago that myself as a techie, as a backstage person, as a production technician i actually spent some time during that production wondering if thematically the sets transitions were so jarring on purpose which which for that show really did make sense and i thought was a really meta choice and that i actually after i thought about it some really enjoyed uh just very loosely the moors is just about this this estate that is kind of falling apart because of various deaths, you know, in the, in the, in the family and and whatnot. And so, yeah, so like the set itself was on a small regional theater 
it was very well built, which was why I had such a strange reaction to how rickety and loud yeah. it was. It was, it, was in a, it was an accordion. It right. was an accordion type set. So we could open the accordion and be outside and then close that accordion. And then we were in a completely different space. But you're right. They spent so much time like sort of purposefully making that smooth but also, like you said, very jarring. Right, because it has to work. Right, like it can't, it can't get stuck in like you and know, it got in stuck pre- unpredictable so places. Often, like it does have to be as smooth <laughs> as possible. But there was definitely like a very clear, like we don't want this to be comfortable. Yeah, kind of air that I got about it, and I, I think that was the first time, and I've been doing this a long time. That was the first time that I ever thought about the transitions in the show being a part of the show part of the storytelling in a way that it's supposed to grab your attention and it's supposed to kind of like it's supposed to add something to your experience it was very interesting yeah and i mean it's interesting that you know we we don't think about it that way because it's you don't want your audience to turn off for five or ten seconds in between scene transitions because then as an actor in that show you sort of have to work at the top of that scene to get them back on board back in the moment and and that can be difficult well what's your favorite backstage thing to do that doesn't put you on the marquee sure um well like i said i mean i do a lot of that stuff for my day job and also my position with our theater company so i guess i end up doing a lot of things that fall into the realm of a lot of different positions backstage but i think when i'm the happiest backstage is when i'm making when i'm world building so whether that's building props whether that's building uh costume pieces um whether that's creating you know making a a wooden flat look like a brick wall like those are the things that i enjoy doing kind of Adding those touches to the environment that, like we said, if I did it right, sure, you're thinking, oh, that looks really cool. But you're not you're not thinking about it during the performance. You're not considering the hours it took for me to stipple that brick to make it look real. Like you're just it's just the backdrop and it looks gorgeous, but you're not focused on that. I feel like the most distracting things about theater can be those elements when they're just like too in your face either in one way or the other right like if it just doesn't make sense to have a super realistic set for something that's a little bit more nebulous or vice versa yeah and i i find the distraction it's very much like it's very much like an advertisement like if we were to talk about our patreon and talk about how you could go and subscribe at different levels you can give us $3, $5, $10 a month, and we use that to produce more of this podcast for you. We do AMAs, we can do mini episodes, there's so much that we have to offer, but if we're too distracted with the advertisement, no one wants to pay attention. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my favorite, that's my favorite thing to do, which is, is to, is to go ahead and make the world within the show, wherever the piece that I'm working on will exist, uh, just a little bit fuller, a little bit more complete. 
And that is what our guest, Chris Moneymaker, does on the daily. So in just a moment, we are going to bring him on and expand this conversation a little bit. All right, with us today, we have the one and the only, probably not because it's a decently common name, Christopher Moneymaker. Welcome, welcome, and welcome again. Please do us a favor, introduce yourself, let us know your pronouns, and tell us something interesting about yourself, something fun, anything. Uh, so, all right, I'll uh, I'll start by saying that my name is, in fact, really and truly Chris Moneymaker. I am, F- in fact, at least back in high school, I used to joke about how the fact that there was some database that you could go to and look at how many people in the U.S. had your name. There were five Chris Moneymakers in the U.S. back in high school. And counting the World Series of Poker winner from back from around that, that age, 2006 or so, I knew Kind of, and counting myself, I knew three of them. And in fact, not not only that, but one of the others lived in the same school district. Oh, me, wow. But wasn't related to me. That's so bizarre. <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. There were, there were two. Not only was there a moneymaker clan that I was part of, there were two moneymaker clans in my hometown district that were not related. I like the idea of you guys, like, getting together once a year to battle. The battle. Battle of the Chris Moneymakers. Swords, shields. Yeah, absolutely. There can only be one. (laughs) Uh, And I use he, him pronouns. And I mean, I think the moneymaker thing is just interesting enough on its own. If I have to say something else interesting. No, no, that was that was pretty interesting. That was good. And you could you could very well create your own sword and shield for that battle if need be. Maybe it wouldn't be actually battle ready since. You're a props master, but uh, it would be convincing, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, well, and 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 the, you know, and you hit on something there. It's all about showmanship, but it's also it's uh, prop mastering is not just about fabrication. It's about knowing where to find the thing. Oh, okay, okay. For you know, if I had to prepare for battle, he's got a sword guy. I wouldn't necessarily fabricate my own sword and shield. I'd uh, I'd find a sufficient metalsmith to do the work for me. I think my favorite part about it is his sword guy is his wife. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about where where you're working and uh, how you've been how you've been doing through through COVID as a, a working artist. Well, all right, I'll start by saying that I am a props master or props artist. I've been working in props for over a decade now. It is not what I necessarily thought I was doing with my career when I got out of college. I thought I was going to be a stage manager, but after my first job out in which I was a stage manager, the person I was dating at the time looked at me and said, you know, you've got this experience in carpentry and painting and stage management, and but all these other things, it's like you should you should try props. So I've been doing props for a decade now. Worked for a couple of years bouncing around. I was up in Hartford Stage for a while. That was my first prop job down in Flat Rock, North Carolina for a while. And then I spent six years as a prop master of the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia, where I met you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that was uh, really a big training ground for me is where I learned to hone my skills in props artistry. From there, uh, left there in 2018, 
came down here to Georgia, where I once again joined the uh, world of bouncing, the, the gig economy of the arts. Spent a year or so bouncing around uh, between different theaters and, you know, worked as a carpenter, worked as a painter here, worked as a carpenter there, worked as props person over here, designed an escape room, took odd jobs for that first year or so before finally... Forgot you designed escape rooms, too. Yeah. Did that for a while before finally landing at the Atlanta Opera, where I am their current props artisan and assistant technical director. So you've, you've said artist, artisan, and master. Is there a difference between these levels of propping, or is that just sort of a title changes depends on where you work? A little column A, a little column B. I'm sure there are many props masters who are not prop artists or artists. Like artists and artisans are, that's a little bit exchangeable. Uh, there's certainly props masters who are not props artisans. There's also definitely props artisans who are not props masters. Kind of the square rectangle thing, gotcha. Yeah. A props master is someone that is in charge of aggregating all of the props in the theater one way or another. Props artisan is for is typically responsible. The use of the word like artist or artisan uh, is indicative of being able to craft props, being able to fabricate props, uh, where props master might actually like supervise props artisans, uh, but they might not do any of the fabrication themselves. They might be a shopper person that buys the props, or they might just be a supervisor. But sometimes in some theaters, like if a, at the Shakespeare Center, I was the prop master because I was in charge of aggregating all the props, but I was also a props artisan there because I, like in the course of aggregating all those props, I would often be fabricating. Them. Yeah, a lot of backstage jobs are going to vary from theater house to theater house, just depending on the staffing, the, you know, um, you know, the budget of the, of the place where you're working. Can they afford to have a props master and production technicians? You know, uh, a lot of times they can't. <laughs> so, so you end up with the, the umbrella position. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, when I worked in, uh, when I worked in Hartford, I was a prop apprentice there. We had a prop master, a props artisan, and a props apprentice. And then we would have props over hire folks that would come in occasionally and do the work. I feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> that shop could expand or contract depending on the size. When I worked at Flat Rock, there was I was a props intern there. Again, props master, props artisan, props intern. Then when I was working at the Shakespeare Center, I was the props master, and I was the only one there. And so suddenly... All that work that in other theaters would have been divided between three tiers of different people doing different things, all of it was on me. And so that was a real crash course in having to do all the things. Yeah, yeah. And um, being someone that has seen your work, you've done some, you did some pretty interesting things there. I mean, one, one thing of note I remember you had to build was a hot poker. <laughs> oh, yeah. For Edward II, I think was that show. Yeah. There is... An iconic scene, spoiler alert for a 500-year-old <laughs> play. There is there's a scene where someone takes a hot poker up their ass. And, Title of the episode. Uh, they wanted this, the, like, and I forget all the ins and outs of it, because on one hand, they were disappointed that, like, it couldn't, 
Like they wanted like push button technology or something on a tinfoil budget. It was literally, yeah. I mean, again, and let's be clear, working at the Shakespeare Center, I had my my uh, seasonal budget. And when I say seasonal budget, I'm talking about on average doing between three to five shows per season. My seasonal budget was around fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Whoa! So wow. that would work out, generally speaking, to somewhere between three and five hundred dollars a show. Wow! Uh, which is like well, for props, yeah. Some sometimes that was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that was not nearly enough money. Uh, so for this hot poker, it lit, like I literally it was a dowel rod that it painted black and it drilled a hole into. And I stuck like a little mini LED flashlight into the hole. And it was one of those little mini LED flashlights where you turn the the tip of it to turn it on and off. And so like I stuck it into the hole with that tip still sticking out. And then I just like poured hot glue <laughs> over the tip until like the tip was covered. But then I like I slut and so I poured that until it had this nice sort of like pointy hot poker tip to it and then i like cut it free from the like dowel rod so it could still rotate and then i kind of like painted it like black and red so that when you turned it so like the actor and and it was um i think it was james keegan that played the the role and he just mad he like i i don't even know how he did it but he just masterfully could take this thing from you know when it was cold it looked like just this big black metal thing and he would just stick it in this bucket and then he would come back around and he'd like somewhere in it he'd mask the movement which he would turn the thing on and like he turns back around and suddenly the the light was on and the tip was glowing like red hot it was a pretty wild effect but it was also as i just described super simple and stupid it's literally a dowel rod drilled little mini flashlight dowel rod pull little mini flashlight hot glue little bit of paint do you have a favorite prop that you've um that you've made you know i mm, i mean i've made i've definitely made some really cool props i really loved i mean didn't love making. Uh, I really enjoyed everything I made for Return to the Forbidden Planet. Uh, that's another show I did at the Shakespeare Center. The alien tentacle coming down yeah. from the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, but well, and just uh, like the building, like a James T. Kirk style, like spaceship captain's chair, having these tentacles that both like this thirty foot long tentacle that descended from the ceiling, and these smaller tentacles that that rise up from the floor. It was like it was just this very is wild and and figuring out how to make those things and and sort of what came of it was really cool. I'm also like I I always I always say if someone asks like what's my favorite prop to make or what's my favorite props to make, uh, I love gross shit. <laughs> I love making body parts. I love making decapitated heads, guts, viscera. Like honestly, one of my proudest props, and it's still in the Shakespeare Center stock, even though I always intended to steal it. Uh, was the for for Macbeth I made there's a line about um one of the witches talks about bringing home a pilot's thumb and I made this like I took this rubber hand and I like cut off the the like the wrist and thumb of it and like then stuffed it full of like 
sponge again sponge like hot glue does wonderful things <laughs> and props uh, just stuck it full of like sponge and then poured a bunch of hot glue over the sponge to give it like this weird like visceral blood, gross internal blood and guts sort of look to it and then painted it to fit and uh, I was I was really proud of that pilot's thumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a fifteen hundred dollar budget. Twelve hundred goes to hot glue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> duct tape, duct tape, mouth too. Du- duct tape, hot glue. You know, it's 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 weird. Uh, for for when I'm working down here, I'm I'm now props artisan and TD as the Atlanta Opera before COVID. And and let's be clear, I got the the and because I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, well, no, we'll talk about this later. We'll talk about COVID in a moment. I built Salome, which, based off the biblical story, which, again, spoilers for a story that is literally thousands of years old, <laughs> ends with Salome getting the head of John the Baptist. And that was another one that I, like, Lord knows that was such a fighting process because they wanted the head to be bigger and then they wanted to be smaller and then they wanted to be heavier. And then they wanted more blood and they wanted less blood. And they wanted to actually see the actor's face for a little while. And like, that was one that like, I didn't want to do. The designer didn't want to do quickly got shut down, but it, it went through three or four iterations, but bullet basically I've got a photo of it somewhere that, that when you took what was the designer's concept image and then I took a photo of my final product on stage under lights in action and the the consistency between the designer's initial like reference image and what I made is so, again, patting myself on the back. It was so good that that I felt really proud of it. Yeah, I think a lot of people may not realize that how much of this stuff you can't just buy like how much of the stuff that that they see on a stage that sure you could probably you could probably special order from someone like you somewhere far away you know there's all those all these places um that specialize in building big pieces for like Disney or you know um you know all these other places but most theaters just have a guy in the back with a bunch of random crap oh yeah that he's collected and that's thrown stuff together <laughs> yeah so you kind of have to be a little bit of like a like a materials engineer in a way to know what you need. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's. I've always said the prop doing being good at props is a matter of ultimately understanding where things come from. At least in and and different theaters do this different ways. Different shows operate on different levels. But like at the opera, I'm given a props list, and I'm told this is what we need and. From that, I have to go, okay, how do I get this stuff? And being like, that's literally one of the first steps is I I parse through and I go, okay, this is stuff that I know we have. This is stuff that I know I can just buy. And then this is the stuff that like, either I'm going to have to find that specialist or I'm going to have to fabricate myself. And so that, that like that, is often my first step is assessing, okay, I need a bunch of letters. That's easy. We've got that. Like I need to buy a new cane for this. They, they provide a reference image for, and I can just go out and literally, you know, sometimes the, the, again, working with the designer, 
they'll often be like, this is what I'm thinking, or this is what I'm looking for. And then they'll give you an image. And honestly, technology is marvelous. Sometimes where it's like, oh, we, I want this cane. Well, just Google image, reverse search the image they provide. And oh, look, it's for sale here. And yeah, look at the opera. I've got that $1,500, $2,000 budget for season is my like baseline small show budget. Oh, wow. And yeah. so like you can go a little more extravagant um, there. I can, yeah, I can be, I can be a little bit more of, Oh, you want this thing? Oh, here it is for sale for a hundred bucks. I'm just going to buy it. So you, you kind of mentioned like the, the head that you were so proud of and how it looked in action on the stage. And I would like you to kind of like talk about that and elaborate on that because I, I think there's something to a prop that a, actor has to hold and they're like well this thing doesn't look real it looks jank it looks fake etc etc but you as the prop artisan or prop master know how your stage functions you know where your audience is going to see things from you know how lights are going to affect certain aspects of the props that you're making uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an interesting part of the equation. It's certainly a conundrum. I mean, uh, working in different theaters, that's always going to be a different equation. So, like the Shakespeare Center, the Shakespeare Center operates that oftentimes the audience is right there and very close to the stage, uh, with doing it with the lights on, uh, which is the stupid catchphrase of that theater. <laughs> Even the creator of that catchphrase hates it. <laughs> but that that everything's super visible, and so suddenly things had to be very detailed and very real. And even then, that's so flexible. But like the exposure you get in that situation is very different from, say, the exposure that you get at we perform the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. At least when there isn't a pandemic going on, that is a giant like I don't know how many the the Cobb sits. It's it's. I think a multi-thousand seed. Uh, in fact, I'm just gonna, ha I'm, I'm gonna, you know, excuse this. How many seats in the uh, Cobb Energy loading Center? information? Loading information. Let's, let's see what the answer. There's 2,750 seats at the theater. There's, I think, two or three hundred at the Shakespeare Center. So very different spaces to to like a 200 to 300 seat theater versus 2700 seat theater and and so you'll very different it's it's the difference between people talk about how does the prop look at five feet how does the prop look at 15 feet how does it work at the 30 feet uh i know at the when i'm performing at the Cobb energy performing arts center nothing no one is going to be closer than 30 feet because we have a orchestra pit that literally provides that much space between the audience and the stage so yeah, that's it's it's all about negotiating that that gap or lack thereof. Do you ever get something and you have to turn around and say to whoever designed it, like, look, I can do this, but it's gonna break the budget. How do you have that conversation? I mean, oftentimes just like that. <laughs> uh, and and it's hard. I mean, it's hard at the Shakespeare Center. Uh, one of the things I butted up against was that refusal like realistic conversation about tech was always seen as a denial that if i said okay we can make this but it's going to cost you x or we can do this but it's not going to work in the way that you think it is because of y 
And having those conversations there was always sort of difficult because the attitudes there were, were sort of problematic and toxic. Um, we won't, I mean... We'll bring you back for another episode. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, toxicity in the workplace. We'll do it. It was one of those things where, where having those conversations in that environment was really difficult. At the opera, it's a lot easier to just be like, hey, just so you know, this is going to cost X amount. And a lot of the times they just sort of shrug and go, okay, fine. <laughs> it's still, I mean, like sometimes the, the harder thing is, harder than budget is there are times that, and this comes from both designers and directors, that you get a request and and I call it a phys- the, the physics problems where you get a request and you you hear it and you go, that's not like internally you go, that's not possible. And then you have to deal with the difficulty that is as te- like as a technician, we are often more essentially aware of what technology exists and what is a feasible request and what is fairy tale land. It's infinitely hard. Like it's it's easy to look and say, hey, I can do this thing. It's gonna cost me five hundred dollars. It's significantly harder to tell designers and directors that their idea is a fairy tale and that that is not realistic. But sometimes that's the conversation that has to happen. You've probably crushed a lot of dreams. <laughs> and let's be clear, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, and, and the joke I would say to that is, I feel like I've probably fulfilled a number of dreams as well. You know, that hot poker thing, that giant tentacle descending from the ceiling. Like, there have definitely been a bunch of times where I've succeeded in accomplishing some big thing on a shoestring budget that I ultimately was very proud about. But there are absolutely times where I've had to look and go, no, that doesn't, that isn't going to work that way. And I'm sorry, but you can't have it. And I also feel like as a backstage worker, you don't have the platform to really pat yourself on the back and, and brag about those things. Like actors on stage get the accolades at the end of every show. You know what I mean? And what I feel a lot of actors don't understand is, all of that isn't for them. Yeah, and and that was one of those things that I constantly butted up against, uh, at least at the Shakespeare Center, but exists everywhere in theater, is a lack of understanding and appreciation for the technical artists. So, like, at the Shakespeare Center, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and give some specific examples, like, and this wasn't the Shakespeare Center's fault, but there was a reviewer who would frequently come, a big supporter of the Shakespeare Center, frequently come and review the shows, usually positively, though not always. He definitely panned them a couple times. <laughs> um, and he would almost always list actors that stood out one way or another, and he would um, frequently talk, he, he'd often talk about costumes and, and reference the cut, co- but even in talking about the costumes occasionally he would reference the costume designer but not always and on a few rare occasions he would mention props and never mention my name Mm. uh and it was just the sort of thing that i i sort of looked at and was like so you give credit to the actors for their performances you talk about the costumes and occasionally you'll give credit to the costume shop but not not all the time and I'm 
basically chopped liver. And, and so that, that problem exists. I've worked at a theater that, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm, you know, go into this, but I don't, I don't feel like this is the right meaning to go into it. <laughs> Have some thoughts. Well, no, I mean, it, 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 it gives yeah. us an illustrative picture of, of how appreciation kind of goes a long way. Like, you know, you're not, you're not asking for an award or like, you know, you just want a little bit of recognition for the work that you did. And especially if it's being like heralded, right? You're like, oh, you really like that? Well, thanks. But it'd be nice if it was like, you yeah. know, I was mentioned. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, and I'm, I'm going to try and speak about this in as vague terms as possible. I've worked for a theater where in the midst of a financial crisis, they cut benefits to the technical team and gave act benefits to their acting company. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of an odd uh, switch they made their their technical department they took from being full-time staff to being independent contractors. And they made their actors who were typically independent contractors full-time staff with benefits. And it was such an odd shift for them to make, again, particularly in the midst of this financial crisis, and it really felt like a stab in the back to the technical staff. And I don't, I don't even particularly believe that they were that cognizant of the fact that it was. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of one of the one of the areas that maybe some people also don't think of is of being like a strong and consistent example of why unions are important. <laughs> are are those types of positions are those you know rarely union but if you're lucky you know you're a techie somewhere under a union it's it's curious i mean the opera is um like my job at the opera is basically a full-time job uh but we do have a union crew that is protected by union benefits and uh, the iotsi mm-hmm. local union um, and so they, they have their benefits and they have their own protections, but it's sort of weird, you know, and yeah, I mean, there are certain hypothetically certain benefits to, to being, you know, full-time at the opera, but it's also weird sort of, uh, there are disadvantages to it too, as well, that we literally were joking earlier the other day uh, about like, about, I was joking with my TD about, you know, we should, how we should unionize or we should, you know, make a more definitive stand along with our union employees about the general treatment of staff, technical sure, staff at the opera. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you're full time, so you have job security, you know, but you lose, you lose a lot of other, other rights that being in a union would grant you. I totally, totally oh, yeah. understand that. The hour, the, the hours, the hours can be killer. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So, so you said that you, when you, you, you had a more of a focus on stage managing and, and then you kind of got into this, what aspects of, of everything that you've done before, you've kind of talked about carpentry and, and crafting things, but what did you learn from your stage managing time that helps you with your prop, either mastering or crafting? Um, I mean, in general, I think, like, if nothing else, being friends with the stage manager 
is one of the lessons that you learn being a stage manager because being friends with a stage manager is the best way and, and easiest way to survive a theater experience. Always be friends with your stage manager. I think in general, like, stage management teaches you a lot about organization. It teaches you a lot about management. It teaches you a lot about paperwork and analysis in general, like being able to operate in a way that is cohesive in that sort of theatrical environment. And it helps you understand. I I would also say the nature of stage management is such that you get to see a lot of how theater is a community effort that is cross-departmental and that all these people come together. Like stage managers have to stay in touch with actors and the directors and the designers and the technical staff and the costume shop and, and all these different departments. And so being a stage manager sort of is a good reminder and good crash course and how ultimately sometimes everything can feel very disjointed, but ultimately like theater is always a very collaborative effort. Yeah, you also brought up the idea of the uh, sort of gig economy. And we sort of talked about this a little bit on the show before about how artists aren't really allowed to do just one thing in the theater community. You know, you started out as stage manager. You currently do props. I know that you do some playwriting. I know that you have acted before. So what are those things outside of propping that you really enjoy that really kind of get your juices cooking. Yeah, I said it. I mean, I I really like playwriting. I mean, Shane, you know, I own a murder mystery dinner theater company uh, that hasn't operated at all for nearly a year now because of coronavirus. But we write the shows for that and um, I used to act for it when I was in Virginia. It operates in Virginia at Massanutten Resort. Link in the description. <laughs> uh, for whenever the world goes back to normal. But that was a lot of fun. You know, acting it, I directed for some, really enjoyed that. Honestly, and, and you sort of uh, touched on it, you were kind of talking about this isn't an answer to the question you were asking, but it's inherent to what you were talking about. When I was in high school, I had this director, there was this... Um, I've worked for, and this this is true of, I just realized in thinking about this, about, about what it was going to say, is how true this is for a lot of theater and a lot of theaters and a lot of theater people. I have worked for, a, I've worked for and with a bunch of mean, abusive bastards over the years. <laughs> but, but I worked with this guy that was a real slave driver, um, but new theater, new inherently understood the effort that went into theater and he he looked at some point and said at, at some point he looked and said one of the pieces of advice he gave is that you should absorb everything learn if you want to work in theater learn everything you can because it is essential to being part of the theater community and I took that lesson and sort of took it the step further or, or have taken it the step further. And I often say one of the, the advice I've, I've had the opportunity, really the blessing a few times to like talk to students, both high school and college level about theater and about what I do. Um, and I always love it. Uh, and one of the things that I say frequently is 
because they're and, and when I'm doing this, I'm always talking to theater kids. It's always some theater class or some theater group. Um, and one of the things they say is like, all right, who wants to be an actor? And undoubtedly, because it's high school and college theater, everyone's hands go up. Then I, I look and say, all right, who wants to work in theater? And that tends to confuse people a little, confuse them a little bit. Uh, and I, I, I usually say, so like everyone that is passionate about theater as a, as a kid, as a, as a high schooler, as whatever, is going to eventually get faced with the conundrum that is, do you want to be an actor or do you want to work in theater? And I'm not saying that if you choose that you want to be an actor that you can't, that that isn't an option, but that is hard. Being an actor is very hard. It is very, it is the most gig-based of uh, uh, like options. It is the most competitive of options. And arguably the smallest portion. Yeah. And well, and that's the thing, you know, so if you want to work an actor, go for it, be it, do it. I'm not, uh, for anyone listening, I'm not trying to discourage you from being an actor if you're passionate about theater. What I'm telling you is if you are passionate about theater and want to make that your career, there is lots of stuff that you can do other than acting that that is significant that there are lots of different fields whether you're a stage manager or a painter or a carpenter or a sound technician light technician props person painter um i'm sure i've listed some of these twice choreographers um music directors musicians that that there are all these infrastructure people and let's be clear and, and I'm, I'm gonna say it and i i usually don't even go this way you know there's there's theatrical accountants and there are development people and educational uh, theater education people that are almost the they're part of infrastructure for almost every theater in the united states and a lot of those jobs you're not necessarily having the same effect as someone working you know an actor working on stage or even a technician that is working to create things on stage but you're part of that theater community and so you know, to me, I think there is this this big and significant dichotomy between the question of do you want to work as an actor or do you, you know, working in theater, do you want to work as an actor or do you want to work in theater? And, and I, I encourage anyone that wants to do the latter to do as that director said and learn everything you can. And I'm also going to pause for a moment and just say, and this is outside of the podcast, even though I'm still recording. I apologize for using the word slave driver. <laughs> I don't know if that was PC or not. Did it, didn't think about it as it coming out you know, of my mouth. Um, I, I thought about it I when you said even, it. It didn't even register. I'm, I'm thoroughly colonized. I don't like it. Didn't even. It wasn't even like a consideration. I don't know. If it, if it's a problem, cut it out. I'll record something sure, else. Something. Sure, yeah. Whatever. I mean, how do you feel about us? keeping that and your acknowledgement of it in the podcast if you are if you are uncomfortable with it it is more than something that we can get rid of i'm fine with it i just hope that everyone takes with a grain of salt that if if it does offend you yeah it did not totally offend and i'm going to try and be more conscious and you literally are being more conscious of yeah it. like so you I said think... it and you thought about it and it was like oh right that wasn't that was a thing that maybe i shouldn't have said <laughs> Yeah, language is difficult, right? Like, especially especially when we, because like millennials, right? We've got a, kind of got it like the best of both worlds. 
or the it's a double edged sword for us, right? Because like we were born in the time when like, you know, dude, where's my car was a movie, but like now we're in our thirties. That's probably like really problematic right now. <laughs> this is me both being woke and not woke. So brace yourselves. Like I'm so ready. A, I think there is a there are a bunch of words that were very normal when we were growing up and are not at all acceptable now. Uh, not even not even some of the worser words that you could think of. Like most of those were already unacceptable at the time we were growing up. Pretty taboo when we got to them. Yeah, we've got new four letter words. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not PC. I was certainly blind to it, but at the time, but now thinking about it, it's probably not great. But I appreciate, thank you for, for being conscious of it. It's, I appreciate that, and I definitely understand. I appreciate it, and I, I apologize for any listeners that may have been offended. I think that, I think that in terms of like this work backstage, specifically as a prop master, um, and like everything that you shared today, would give our audience a pretty good idea of like, you know, maybe the next time they're going to a show, they'll, they'll have some consideration and flip to that part of the, you know, to that part of the program and figure out who's doing the magic behind the scenes. Um, or not. And that's fine too, because, you know, yeah. I, there's another thing too, like about being like a, an artisan specifically, I think we had another guest talk to this is like, you're, that's not why you're doing it. Right. Like, like it's far more it's nice it's always nice to get that recognition but that's not what the artisan position is for right you're like if you're lucky you get that mention you know like the costume designer and you're right i don't think i've ever ever heard of an a a designer being name dropped unless he's like some big shot artistic designer and it's never the guy that built it <laughs> And I also know a lot of people that have entered into like the backstage theater stuff because they don't want people to talk about them or look at them or applaud for them in any way. They're like, I just want to do the thing I love. Go away. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, and, and uh, I think there is a certain extent to which it is worth considering how you don't necessarily need recognition as an artist. Mm hmm. But I do think that the thing that uh, a lot of technical artists struggle with is that we um, we don't necessarily get the respect that we always sure. deserve. That's that's really the problem. Well, our audience knows that you know my day job is is a lot of what you were talking about. You know, being a being a production technician in a in an art house, performing art house, and like honestly, just getting that recognition in terms of like from the directors, from the the actors, from the producer. You know, that's really, that's perfect for me. You know what I mean? Like, because they see me working every day to, to bring to life something that an artist has, like, conceptualized and that we are working alongside the artist to create. For me, like, that's what makes my job fun and worth doing is if it's like I'm collaborating with this artist and this artist is showing me that respect that, you know, I'm... I'm helping them actually, you know, create a thing, you know, that would otherwise take them either a really long time or a lot of money to do on their own. <laughs> and I get that impression from what you're saying as well. There's definitely been times where my work has been like recognized or acknowledged by 
an actor in a really positive sense. It's been really awesome. Um, I've definitely had times where a director has been like overjoyed with a prop or how, how something came out, like an, an effect that I've been able to, to make or, or accomplish. And, and that's always like, even that sort of mem- like moments of private recognition, yeah, those can be very, very pleasant. A lot of what we do is because I'm passionate about art and I'm passionate about making things and I like being able to accomplish and show off things that I've done at, like on a technical level, not necessarily on a performative level. Um, uh, and, and oftentimes to other technicians or other theater artists or other artists in general, like the, the audience can, you know, sit back and enjoy the show and go back to their, you know, Netflix, if that's what they prefer, because that's what most audiences do. <laughs> but, uh, like being able to, to enjoy something that I made on stage is definitely its own reward. Well, I know that I feel rewarded having had you on our show today. I hope that coming out and talking to us helps you feel uh, a little bit of that respect that maybe you didn't get in the past and, you know we love you, so we definitely want to have you back, and maybe we'll do a whole second episode with you about, I don't know, we'll pick a pick one of the many topics we touched on tonight, and maybe we'll dive into them deeper at one point. Yeah, it's a, you know, some part of me feels bad, because I know you did ask about COVID at some point, and we have talked about the world of working in, with coronavirus, not at all. And honestly, that's okay we've we've talked about it on this episode on these on this show and it's not something we need to drill into every second of every day it has been so ingrained in every conversation that every person has had in the past year sometimes it's nice not to talk about it yeah yeah also i would like to say though in in light of all this is that like when you folks are out there thinking about you know all the ways that you want to be gracious to your theaters once you're once you're going to them again once you're going to shows again just maybe it's something to think about you know yeah i mean i i think it's uh, and and more than anything and you sort of tapped into it there like when theaters start to reopen go back to theaters yeah that is something that they desperately need right now there are not just and obviously broadway has been we're approaching a year without Broadway, which is bonkers. But Broadway is not the only ones struggling. There are small regional theaters that have been either not operating or operating on a significantly minimalized nature and are struggling because of it. There are lots of people that have lost jobs or underemployed in theater. At some point, and I don't know statistically where they are now, but at some point, the the vast majority of unemployed in the aftermath of coronavirus, it was like it was some huge percent, it was some giant chunk of the pie of the empl- unemployed were hospitality and entertainment, um, which in hospitality and entertainment includes people like restaurant workers mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But like within that, like if it was 40 percent, I don't remember, like within that 40 percent that was the hardest hit, 75 percent of it was entertainment industry. It is literally one of, if not the hardest hit industry in the wake of coronavirus. So to a certain extent, I would look and say like, yeah, think about props, think about costumes, think about sets, because honestly, so much work goes into those things and and they are really cool. And the people that make them are really cool. But 
honestly, at this point, after, uh, again, a year without Broadway, a year without theater for many, many people, I don't care what you think about it. Go back to the theater, watch a show, enjoy it, come back, tell your friends, buy them tickets, get a subscription to your local regional theater, like, do everything you can to support these businesses, um, these theaters, because they are people's livelihoods, they are people's homes, they are people's art, and it's been a real struggle for a lot of them. There you have it. Call to action when the action can be acted upon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chris Moneymaker, props master, writer, friend. Confidant. <laughs> Dean Deer, Magic the Gathering player. So many things. <laughs> All right, man. Been good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chris, for taking the time to talk to us today and sharing a little bit of your experience as a prop master. Now... We're going to go ahead and take it to Shane. Shane, what's our audience participation for today? I think a good one for this week is what is it when you are watching a theatrical production or a movie or a television show? What is something that you notice and appreciate that aren't the actors on the stage? Some prop they're using, some costume they're wearing, some set piece that they are working around what are the things that you notice some practical effects some special effects what either pulls you in or takes you out depending on how it's executed i know one for one thing as an example is i've seen the phantom of the opera on stage and the last magic trick on stage when the phantom disappears is always mind-boggling to me that they're able to pull it off and I'm right there, sitting right there. It's like, it's nothing short of a magician's trick. It's amazing. Yeah, and you know, as always, you can join in this conversation via our Twitter. Check us out at ActListPod. Or you can check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash ActiveListenersPod. And just join in the conversation. Peace. If you like what you hear leave us a rating and if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron our theme music it's a trap was created by remodel thanks for listening